Okay, welcome back, guys. Uh, yet another session uh, as we continue through our study of the Bible, understanding all these books, especially in the Old Testament, can be quite difficult. Um, and hopefully, by the end of this session, we understand a bit more about the book of Ecclesiastes. So, today we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And before I get started, you guys know the rules, right? Uh, there are no rules. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if there's something that's not clear or I'm assuming knowledge on your side, feel free to stop me. And yeah, um, without further ado, let's get started. So the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Um, everybody's favorite book gives everyone butterflies and makes you feel good on the inside. So Ecclesiastes is often overlooked in the Bible, right? When people do read it, they remain confused, not knowing what this book means or even why it's included in God's word. We don't know when the book was written, but the internal evidence points to Solomon. So I'm sure you've heard of King Solomon. The internal evidence, meaning within the book itself, we see clues that it was written by Solomon, such as in chapter 1. Uh, the first verse is the words of the preacher, the son of David, right, king of, king of uh, Jerusalem. And then again, in verse 12, he says, the preacher, says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So this preacher, this king, um, was king over Jerusalem. Uh, there, were, there were many kings, but there weren't many who were kings of the whole of Israel in Jerusalem. In fact, it was only David and Solomon. And in chapter 2, verse 4, if you read from verse 4 to 9, um, it says, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves uh, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. And verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. When you read that description, you get the idea that this king was incredibly rich, incredibly wise, incredibly powerful, and built a whole lot of amazing structures. So it really does point to Solomon who wrote this, right? And it's also important to note that if you read the story, you can see that it's two people, two people or two characters in the book, right? It's the author and the preacher, in this, in this case, Solomon. So at the start, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of king in Jerusalem. So that's the author of the book. And then at the end, you will see again that the author kind of summarizes all of, all of Solomon's words. So... Just any questions on that? Does anyone uh, dispute or um, not agree that Solomon is the author? I don't think anyone will, so I'll continue. So this book itself, the book of Ecclesiastes. Someone once said that the book of Ecclesiastes is the truest book in the Bible because what it does is it shows that life outside of the Lord is vanity or meaningless. Life outside of God is without purpose or meaning. So Ecclesiastes is pre-evangelistic, and what that means is it prepares people for the gospel. People have had very low views of Ecclesiastes because it seems sub-Christian, right? It seems sub-Christian. Um, it doesn't seem like a Christian book because if you read it, it's not a book that says, love God, work hard, everything will be great, you know, promises blessings, promises joy. It's not. It's a very, very negative view on everything. 
there's a phrase that occurs 38 times in the book, which is meaningless or vanity, right? The word vanity is a better translation. So the Hebrew word is actually hevel, hevel, H-E-V-E-L. And directly translated in English, this word means vapor, you know, like your morning breath or a vapor. So vanity here doesn't mean looking at yourself in the mirror. It means in vain or pointless. It means chasing after the wind. It's, it's a vapor. It's here for literally one second. What is the point of it? So this is quite an amazing book. And I think the Lord uses it, especially evangelistically, because it asks the questions that every human being deals with. What is the meaning of life? And if you're honest and you looked at life properly, then you would have to say that it's pretty much meaningless. That's what life is. But it's meaningless only when it's under the sun. If you've read the book, that's another phrase that stands out, under the sun. It's used around 30 times in, in the whole book. And that's what that phrase means and why it's so important. It refers to life outside of God, almost in an atheistic sense. So it's life without God. Now, everyone has a worldview. It's just whether you're aware of it or not. Some people will say, I don't have a worldview. I just see things the way they are. But that's not true. Everyone has a worldview, the way you view the world and interpret things. Everything is interpreted. That's why even when you come to scripture, you find so many different interpretations by different people. Because you, come, you yourself, you come to the Bible with your own worldview and presuppositions, right? your own assumptions. And so you come not only to scripture, but you come to every book like that. You come to every event like that. You come to every situation like that. And it's not just thoughts. A worldview is more than thoughts. It's not just what you think. Your whole personhood is involved in it, along with an entire cultural influence. So some people reject the biblical model of marriage to the point of calling it evil. They say headship and submission is abusive. This is because they grew up in a home or they've seen marriages where women are abused. And so that negative experience has shaped their view on marriage and they read the experience and their views into what the Bible teaches. So that's one example. Our worldviews are very complex because they're made up of our experiences in life, our education, our upbringing, the friends we grew up with, uh, the music we listen to, the movies we watch. So we all have our worldview and they're all very complex things. They're all very big things, but they all impact our lives across the board. <clears throat> so if you're a believer, then your worldview is affected by how much you have allowed scripture to change your thinking. Our reading of scripture should be, um, uh, Mike, Mike uses uh, analogy or this illustration of a virtual spiral, right? So a virtual spiral, it's that circle that you, you draw and then as you go, it keeps getting smaller and smaller to the center. And our reading of scripture should be a virtual spiral, where you get closer and closer to the true biblical worldview, right? And when it comes to worldview, the Bible confronts us and challenges us on many things that Christians today believe are good or bad. So feminism, gender roles, sexuality, family and abortion, how we dress, social justice. Scripture has something to say on all these things that will challenge us. So firstly, be aware of your worldview. And then as you come to scripture... And as it confronts your worldview, you should adjust it and align it more and more with God's word. So keep in mind that it affects your understanding of the Bible and who God is, right? Your worldview does that. 
So people get saved and they come to understand, for example, true and reformed doctrine and theology. Some are saved from a secular lifestyle. And so they have to learn to turn away from a lot of different behaviors and bad habits. And they have to learn to see the world completely differently. You know, what was once good is now bad. And what was now once bad or boring is now good. And in essence, they have to learn about a God that they thought never existed. Some people are saved from bad theology. So they grew up with false doctrines or they spent 15, 20 years in a bad church, you know, believing one thing about God, only to realize it was not true. And they have to do the very difficult work of unlearning what is not true and learning the truth. It's very difficult because all your emotions, your, your experiences, your, everything about your life is tied into all of those things that have shaped you, right? But it's still necessary for us to do the very difficult work of letting scripture shape you and mold you, right? We don't use the Bible to support our beliefs. We use the Bible to set them so that our worldview becomes in line with scripture and then the scripture becomes clearer. And as it becomes clearer, it adjusts our worldview again. It's a cycle. It's a cycle that keeps on going as we conform to the image of Christ in our lives. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. And so, <clears throat> so um, spend time learning God's word, learning your Bible. Nobody has arrived, right? No one can say, I understand scripture perfectly unless you are the Lord Jesus. That is why you need to be teachable because we do not know, right? We do not have perfect theology. So we need to be teachable, except when it comes to primary doctrines. You know, some things are just super clear in scripture. Uh, salvation, the gospel, the trinity, the inerrancy of God's word. We don't move on these things, right? We grasp them uh, and we hold on to them. I hope that makes sense. Um, so we need to be mindful of our worldview because they shape us deeply. Any questions so far? Questions, comments, I hope that was clear. Silence okay. is good. Yes. Chiga. Yeah, so um, I think uh, your introduction and the fact that um, you have exposed um, Ecclesiastes to be a pre a pre gospel book in the sense that it shows what how life is like without without God. And I feel like when you look at philosophy and various philosophers throughout history um, for example, Friedrich Nietzsche and his um, concept and theory of nihilism, mm -hmm. the fact that he um, quite logically concludes that the meaning of there is really no meaning to life. And with that, you can see how mankind can be so evil. And for example, without God, um, life is virtually meaningless. And history proves that over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really kind of humbling and cherishing to see that even there is a book in the Bible that actually does talk about that and address that. Yeah, 100%. And it's not just true for those men and, you know, in history. It's true for our lives. I think we all, if you read this book, there will be so much that you relate to in terms of, you know, it speaks of the daily struggle, you know, the practical things of life that we even we find pointless or tough. Um, but yeah, we'll get into that. There's some passages that we look at which kind of deal with this. Okay, so... Um, one last part of the introduction, right? Solomon himself. Who is Solomon? Uh, for those of you who might not know. So Solomon is a guy whose worldview has had a dramatic change. Solomon, you will remember, is a son of David, King David. He becomes king of Israel at a very young age. 
And when he's made king, he asks God, please give me wisdom. So the Lord says, okay, fine, I will give you wisdom. And it was all good until it wasn't. Eventually, he goes sideways in his life. He goes down the wrong path. Solomon apostatizes and he turns from God to worldly ways. And I believe this is the period when he wrote this book. So we went through the details of this period in his life in the book of Kings and Chronicles. As you know, he ends up marrying unbelieving women against God's command. Not just one, but hundreds of them. Right? He, he, marries, uh, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. These unbelieving women, these Gentiles, they turn his heart away from God towards false gods. Uh, can, can, I, can I just ask, what's yeah. the difference between uh, wife, a wife and, and a concubine? concubine? So a concubine was kind of like uh, lower than a wife. It's like almost, almost like a servant. So, um, yeah, it, it, she, never, she didn't legally have, uh, if I remember correctly, legally have the same rights as a wife. It was almost like a, a servant role, but she belonged to the man. Yeah, something like that. Okay. So these unbelieving women, uh, these Gentiles, they turn his heart away from God towards false gods. He ends up building altars and temples of worship to their gods. So Solomon ends up worshipping idols and false gods, and he turns away from the Lord in his heart and in his lifestyle. So I believe it's during this time that what happens in Ecclesiastes... Sorry, she's checking on the recording. So I believe it's during this time that uh, Ecclesiastes is being written, when he's living a completely hedonistic life, and it's a shambles. Uh, He's completely dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure, and he's self-indulgent, and because he has drifted away from the Lord, life no longer has meaning. He has, a lim- he has limited his horizon, his view of the world, to under the sun. So you can think of that phrase, under the sun, um, in terms of uh, uh, limiting his view to under the heavens, right? So the sun is where the heavens are. It's a phrase that can be understood to, re- to be referring to the heavens, where God is. So... Under the sun is without the heavens, without eternal realities, without a transcendent uh, or, uh, um, you know, otherworldly uh, view of things. So he will mention, as you, read, he, as you read this book, he will mention God here and there, but it's not a biblical worldview, right? He's not atheistic. He's not an atheist. He doesn't deny the existence of God. He just turns to live a life without God, right? I hope that makes sense. So, uh, if you just open your Bibles, we'll start in chapter 1 and then we'll go slowly, chapter by chapter. Uh, Kaya? Yes. Uh, Just when you left the introduction on uh, Solomon and how he got to writing this book, just a question, if God granted him the wisdom that he had asked for, why do we lack some choosing to follow pardon other gods and whatnot? So, sorry, uh, just say that one more time. Why did he? Like, why did he lack the wisdom? Obviously, choosing to stay the part of following, uh, like, the one true God and just, you know, going astray, facing away from God and indulging in sin. So, why did he lack the wisdom to follow God, basically, during this time? Um, uh, how, How I would answer that is, I mean, he was given wisdom, right? And he was given, like, uh, greater intellectual ability than anyone 
Mm. But I don't think it's it's the kind of spiritual wisdom which is tied to the fear of God, right? So, uh, as you read the book, even you know, when he gets to the conclusion, he's like, "Fear God, right? Put your fear in God." And so he he kind of traded that wisdom of of God for other for the wisdom of the world, in essence, right? It's almost like a, a conscious decision. So it was him rebelling against God. It's not like, I don't know, like he lost the wisdom. It was a choice. Um, because he, I think even when we read through Kings and Chronicles, you know, God had warned him about this. You know, he had warned that if he does this, this will happen. Um, he will suffer these consequences. So it's it's kind of like, it's almost like just being a Christian. As a Christian, you know what is the right path. You know what you should do. But sometimes you find yourself living in a way that doesn't, um, align with what you profess to believe, right? I hope I hope that kind of makes sense how I'm putting yeah, it. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Any other questions before we look at chapter one? Okay. So keep your Bibles open. Uh, we'll do a lot of jumping around in the text. Chapter one, verse one: The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that is the author introducing the reader to Solomon, the preacher. Who then says, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And in verse 9, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over, Jeru- over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek, out to, to, seek out, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is a vanity and a striving after wind. Right? Isn't that just inspirational? Um, and then verse 15, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So do you see that? It's, it's interesting. He gives himself to the pursuit of wisdom and intellectual things, but also to understanding madness and folly or foolishness. He wants to see if the answer or the meaning of life can be found in being foolish and being crazy. It's not that Solomon wants to be foolish, right? It's more, um, he wants to understand the opposite of wisdom, which is madness and folly, right? Because he's clearly wise. You can compare it to understand, trying to understand both good and evil. So maybe in comprehending both wisdom and folly, he might find meaning there, that this is a vanity, And so if you turn to chapter 2, in chapter 2, since that was a vanity, one of the things that he will then try to give himself over to is the pursuit of pleasure. So chapter 2, verse verse, uh, 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And as you go through chapter 2, you will see that he gives himself to every kind of pleasure. He gives himself to hundreds of women in sexual pleasure. He gives himself to the best food, the best wine, 
the best architecture and paintings. He, he gives himself to the pleasure of beauty. So in every part of his life, wherever there is pleasure to be had, Solomon has the wealth and the power to experience it. For him, there is no limit, right? Money is not a problem. The world is his playground. And so the amazing thing about this book is it's the journal of a man who's going through life sinning, right? That's the simple truth. He's, he's going through his life rebelling against God. But it's God's grace to us because especially if we are younger believers, um, we think that these joys and pleasures are the things we are missing out on in following the Lord. You can think being a Christian is a killjoy, a missing out. Right? It's, a, it's a temptation to look to the world and think that will bring me joy and happiness and then go and pursue those things. But Ecclesiastes is us getting to see someone live in worldliness, to have the full experience of worldliness. If our experience of world living could be sold in packages, you'd have like, you know, standard and then maybe premium and then the deluxe package. Solomon is living the deluxe package, right? He's got the full experience of secular living, but he sees it for what it really is. It's meaningless. It's vanity. And so Solomon went through it so that you and I don't have to try and do it. If you see someone jump off a cliff and fall and break all the bones in their body, you don't stand there and think, I wonder what that feels like. Maybe I should try that someday. You know, I can't judge it until I've been through it. Let me give it a chance because that's just, that's just madness. So you can see what, pa what pain is brought to that person. So why would you want that for yourself? In the same way, you don't have to put on the things of this world. Solomon wrecked his life, his whole life, so that you don't have to. And remember, Solomon was, one of, was the greatest king in all of Israel. He had incredible wealth and power. He's one of, if not the richest man to have ever lived. He built the temple for Israel. He built a massive house of his own. Other nations were coming to him and giving their wealth to him. So he had the resources to have it all in life, to experience what you and I could only dream of doing. And what does he have to say about it? He says, in the end, it's meaningless. It's all a vapor. Uh, it's a chasing after the wind. So if you look at verse 12, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he turns to wisdom and intellect and learning new things. There's a lot of satisfaction in learning new things and gaining knowledge. And he gives himself to that pursuit. And then he turns in verse 15 and he says, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? As I said in my heart, that, the, as I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So is he correct? In one sense, he is correct. How does the fool die? Same as the wise. The wise man is going to die. The foolish man is going to die. Later on, he will say the rich man is going to die. The poor man is going to die. If you only have an under-the-sun perspective, if life is without God, then the end is the same for all men. Then what is the point of it all? What is the point of living and striving for success? You who are rich and have it all will die and be put in a grave next to the man 
who lived his whole life homeless. So this is, like I said, it's a great book to share with your unbelieving friends because you want to push them to what has been called the line of ultimate or total despair, total hopelessness. And if you don't have Christ, if you are not saved, that's where you should be, in total despair. If you don't have the Lord Jesus, your life is meaningless. But people don't acknowledge this. right? What people do is they deceive themselves, they lie to themselves by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because if they were honest, they would realize, like Solomon, that, well, what is the actual point? you know? And so you want to push people to this line. You want them to realize that there is no point. Just quote the words of Solomon to them. If I get a whole lot of money, I'm, I'm going to die. If I get no money, I'm still going to die. If I have lots of friends, uh, I'm going to die. If I call myself introverted and I'm a loner, I'm still going to die. Right? If I gain a lot of values and possessions, it's just going to stay behind for somebody else. Right? Time, the confusing nature of life and death are the realities that make life meaningless if the world is without God. But you, you know what's, what's ironic is that Nobody lives their life as if it's meaningless, right? Everyone, first of all, looks for meaning and purpose. And as created beings, we cannot live without putting worth or value on things in our lives. Even those who deny God, even those who hate God, who live in rebellion against him, don't do this. They will see their children as valuable and precious. They will look at their spouse and see them as valuable. They appreciate nature and all of creation, all humanity looks for purpose and meaning. But Solomon says, you are deceiving yourself because in the end, it's all vanity. It's a chasing after the wind if there is no God. And so Solomon then turns to look at uh, some of the things in, in the world and, and points out their, their, their futility. He turns to look at work. He turns to look at work and the vanity of work. And I'm sure most of you agree that working can be vanity. But sometimes work can be enjoyable. It can be rewarding to accomplish something. But what does Solomon think about it? So look at verse 22 of chapter 2. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. So this is something you and I have experienced, right? Where you have no peace and your heart is not at rest. It's probably a sign that we need to draw closer to the Lord. And then he says, verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So this is something quite positive, right? And see what he says after that. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving of the wind. So you'll find that every time he says something good, he will then turn around and just dismiss it as meaningless. So turn to chapter 3. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I do have a question if that's okay. Mm. Um, Go ahead. Okay, okay. Okay, um, so a friend of mine asked a question. Um, he's been thinking about uh, the state of, let's say, he's been thinking about sexual immorality and all that. Um, and in the, in the, he asked a question about uh, King Solomon. Mm. 
Tony talks about the idea of, or, or rather, Solomon's wives and uh, concubines, right? And we know that concubines were uh, people, who, they, were, they were not necessarily, they were for pleasure and for having children. Mm-hmm. And they were not necessarily for, uh, as they were not on the same level as wives. So in, in, in Solomon having all these concubines who were not necessarily wives, was he not committing, um, uh, was, was he not being sexually, sexually immoral? Um, how is that perceived in, you know, church doctrine and all that? Um, how, 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 you know, what's, what's the, what's your opinion on that? Or what mean, what knowledge do you hold uh, on, on, on what uh, Solomon did there? Um, it, it is, it, the Bible does speak about uh, us not going to, uh, not going, or, or rather, Solomon not going for foreign women. Women, God addresses that. That is addressed also by by the prophets and all these things um, in in the Bible. But we don't get that aspect of concubines and all that. Was it a cultural thing by then? Which which kings were uh, allowed to do or, or what? What's the story around there? Yeah. And by the way, he, my friend, um, actually, he's he's in the meeting. I invited him this evening to okay. to come through. So that's not a problem. Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to concubine scripture, scripture, the Bible no way like explicitly condemns it, right? But I think I think it's it's implicitly. Uh, I mean, just like just like how marriage you see marriage in the Old Testament, I think the Bible condemns it, and I, and by that I mean you know like in the Old Testament you see the patriarchs have many wives, right? Like Abraham took many wives and. Um, and I think it's the same case with concubines where it's the, the God's design is one man, one woman. And so I think in, with concubines, it's the same as where you see polygamy. It's, it's, I don't think it's ever specifically condemned as sinning, right? So, uh, I don't think that having a concubine would be sexually moral in the, in the sense of it's a category of sin. But, um, so that, that's what I think about it, right? Um, it might be, it might be a sin, but it's not like explicitly, you know, shown. I think it's more implicit. Um, that's, so that's what I think on that. And then, um, sorry, what was the second part of your question that I wanted to, uh, what, what else, what else, what did you say? I'm sorry, Claypool, can you just, can you just remind me? Because there's something else that I um, need to say too. About, about Solomon being immoral. Oh yeah, Solomon. Um, yeah, God, yeah, God addresses all these other sins of going after other women, women, yeah. strange women, and all that. But yeah. that one's not addressed. I don't know if that's the one that you wanted to deal with. Yeah, because yeah, so that's 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 actually it. Um, so with Solomon, even uh, remember in Exodus or uh, in Deuteronomy, where the commands are given to kings, you know, not to have many wives or not to have many, um, and the reason the reason God gives for that is because of what happens to Solomon, because they will draw you away from the Lord. So, um, yeah, I think I think then it's 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 kind of difficult to say. Like, uh, I think the bigger the bigger issue is him having unbelieving wives than it just being a concubine or having it being many wives. You know. So I think the Bible more explicitly condemns that than 
um, than anything else because that was the end result. So that, I mean, that's as far as my knowledge goes on the topic. And I don't know if I could put it together as clearly as possible, but yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. I don't know if anyone else has input. Yes. If yeah. anyone has any, any other thoughts. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Benji, your, your line is, is very... Yeah, I didn't get that at all, Benji. Your, your line was not clear. Okay, I think it should be clearer now. Is yeah. it better? Yes, now you're actually audible. Okay. Now, I was just saying a good place to go is Matthew 19, where Jesus answers some of these questions. Mm. Um, about divorce and that sort of thing. And he says um, that because of their hardness of heart, um, God had allowed some things to be, like giving a certificate of divorce and divorcing your wife. But then he points to Genesis. He points to creation and says, from the beginning it was not so. Um, and then he says, therefore, sorry, chapter 19, Matthew 19, verse 5, therefore man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And so he yeah, so he says in verse eight, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Um, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it's just important that we we do note that in the Old Testament some things God allowed that were not his design. He just allowed them because of the hardness of heart of the Israelites, but that doesn't mean that it's okay. He looked over it, but now because of the revelation of Jesus and because of the full teaching, the full counsel of God, these things, they're no longer, you know, we can't actually, God does not look over them anymore because there's clear teaching. Um, I hope that does shed some more light. Um, I would assume that in my case, yes, definitely. Thank you very much. Okay, cool. I'm going to can, can I add something? Just uh, so the song question, if that's okay with you, I'm looking at the yeah, time. Very quickly, I very quickly, please. Akara, can yeah, you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, but very quickly, please. Okay, man. Um, the, the song question played for regarding the, the wives, uh, you know, uh, him um, having to marry Egyptian wives and other women. Um, as you remember the story of Ruth, where uh, actually um, Ruth was not an Israelite. But one thing that happened is that um, his uh, Ruth's husband, the, the first husband of Ruth, passed on because of there was a judgment on uh, from the Lord, uh, them marrying um, other wives from different tribes. This happens always only when um, your wife, you as a you as a husband, your wife has has to convert to, to your faith. So with Solomon, that never happened. So it was more an abomination for Solomon to do that, not because of um, to go to marry other different wives, even though also it's to mention that you shouldn't do that, but the point is to convert them, which Kyle mentioned about, uh, you know, the issue of them not believing, uh, not needing more, more, more wives, uh, foreign wives, but not, not, not them believing. So uh, the sole question has a lot to do with does the wife convert or not? If if she she does convert, then God will have no problem with that. But if she still has to worship her goals and all that, then they don't really be about that. 
Let's follow it up uh, after the meeting, guys. Sure, we'll continue. All right, cool. So let's go to chapter 3 quickly. Chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now Solomon turns to the issue of injustice. He has looked at ways he could get pleasure and realized that the pursuit of pleasure doesn't satisfy. Maybe the satisfaction, the meaning, and the purpose will come from fixing all the problems in the, in the world. Right? We live in a fallen world, so let's fix it. Maybe it lies with fighting, within fighting injustice and oppression. We see injustice all over the world. We see it daily in our lives, in our community. We see it on social media. It's written in the history of our own, of our own country and in the history of the world. Yet, injustice and oppression doesn't seem to be coming to an end. You see horrible things. You see rape and murder and incest. You see abortions and children being abandoned. You see priests and pastors molesting and sexually abusing congregants, even young children. You see judges letting the guilty go free and punishing the innocent and taking bribes. Injustice and oppression is everywhere. So Solomon says in verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now that sounds biblical, right? Then he says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but, are but beasts. And then he says in verse 19, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes, goes down into the earth. Now, that's not biblical, right? That part is not biblical. That is very atheistic. And so, you get unbelievers who pursue justice outside of God. Today, there's this fight, the passion for justice, social justice. An aspect of it is people looking to find meaning and purpose in it. Let us solve racism once and for all, and then this world will be good. Right? All, all activists, uh, socialists, feminists are trying to bring justice in the world. But they are looking at the world without God. And so they can never achieve true justice. It's not enough to point to slavery or racism and abuse or any injustice and call for mourning and sorrow. You can preach guilt and shame and demand blood, but you, and, and you can even get people to uh, agree to restitution and reparations and all the rest. But when you have done so, you've not set men and women free, right? You've only loaded them with despair and the injustice remains, right? Um, it, it's, it's the point that Paul gets to in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 when he says, Worldly sorrow or worldly repentance leads to death, right? And taking it back to justice, God sets the, the standard for justice and what justice is. He's the only just and righteous judge. You can't rightly care about racial justice or justice for the unborn or justice for the poor and for the immigrant or for the elderly and the disabled if you do not see the massive injustice of the betrayal and execution of Jesus and 
how at the same time there was a glorious justice that was accomplished and revealed in the cross, in the crucifixion. In Christ, we see true and perfect justice, right? The true and perfect justice of God when he poured out the wrath that we deserve on his son. So justice has been served for those who are in Christ. But if you are not a believer, remember that when Christ comes back, he comes back as a judge to deliver justice on all sinners for their unrighteousness. So we need to repent of our sins and trust in the saving work of Christ. And remember, it's God who determines what truly is justice. If you have a world without God and you, you say you're bringing justice, really at the end, you just, you're just trying to bring um, power and control and you get to decide what is good. You know, we, be, we make ourselves uh, gods of the world. We decide what's good and what's right and what's evil, right? And we make ourselves a judge. And we know how that has never turned out right in history. And so in chapter 4, he goes on to talk about injustice. And then he gives commentary on economics as well. So turn to chapter 4. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Which is interesting because most people in the world, a lot of people work hard. right? Solomon here says people work hard because of envy. And there's a lot of truth to that. You see your neighbor has a nice house, nice cars, nice clothes. So you say, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put in the overtime, you know, 24-7. The grind doesn't stop so that I can get a nice house. I can get a nice car. That's how it is under the sun. That's life in a secular culture. In a Christian worldview, believers should be those with hearts that are seeking or that are asking, how can I serve others? It's not about me and my comfort. I work hard so that I have resources to help God's kingdom first and foremost and to serve others. In the book of Acts, when the church is first formed, it's a mix of all kinds of people from all walks of life. The rich, the rich members of the church gave up their wealth for the sake of the church, right? Taking off the, looking after uh, the poorer people in the church. And that's the example we have to follow. Are you using your resources, your money, your time, your energy, for the sake of the gospel and God's people. Um, so I'm going to quickly summarize here because we're running out of time, but chapters 5 to 11, right? So in chapters 5 to 7, it's Solomon making more observations about the things that happen in life and the vanity of it all. So if you read through it, uh, he talks about wealth and family and friendship. He says something good about all these things and he gives a lot of practical counsel for living in a fallen world. But still the conclusion is the same. This is vanity. It's meaningless. And then in chapter 8 to the end of uh, chapter 12, he does the same. He reflects on, on some things, uh, on the same things. He says you should fear God, uh, obey his commands, work hard, live joyfully with your wife, eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart because that's all you have left really in this meaningless world. And so we're going to jump to the last chapter. If you go to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the book is ended by the author, the one who is providing commentary. Remember the preacher here is Solomon and the author is unknown, but he's the one who comes and summarizes what Solomon has been saying. Right? And he says in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So that is exactly what Solomon was known for, right? He wrote many Proverbs. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
so he delighted in words. He loved words. He's a writer and a poet. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like, are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that is the conclusion based on the life of Solomon. I think that at the end of his life, by God's grace, Solomon was made aware of his sin and his foolishness. So he recorded here his experience for the benefit of others, including you and I. I think this book serves as his, his book of his repentance. And the author is teaching us this lesson because you and I, every day, we are tempted to take another path, thinking it will bring us satisfaction. We don't have to go that path, right? Just remember Solomon and that he has already gone that path and it's a waste of time. And we know that, don't we? God says, take the narrow road, but we want the broad path. And it never satisfies. We all, we all have that one thing. If I just get this one thing in my life, I will be satisfied and I'll have made it, right? And that looks different for every one of us. For some, it's career achievements. Um, for sportsmen, it's winning a trophy, an Olympic medal. For others, it's marriage and children. For others, it's getting a degree or uh, being, becoming the CEO of a big corporation. And if we are honest with ourselves, every time we get what we thought would satisfy us, it doesn't. And that's what Solomon is saying. At the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. Sanctific uh, satisfaction, true satisfaction, is found in knowing God and obeying him, doing his will. That's where true happiness and joy comes from. And that's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are meek and kind. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed, blessed means happy, right? So happy are those who serve him. Those who serve God will be happy. No created good, no created thing can satisfy the soul. That happiness is to be found in God alone. So where do we see Christ in this book? So remember, this is wisdom literature. And Solomon has been giving himself to finding wisdom. But he doesn't find it under the sun, right? It's not there. If you're going to live with the, with the worldview that excludes God, right? That suppresses the knowledge of God. Wisdom is in the fear of the Lord. All things find their meaning and purpose in the Son, the Son of God. Meaning and purpose and life are in Jesus Christ. And we will only recognize the meaning and the purpose of our lives through our relationship with God, who created us as his image bearers uh, to live for his glory in this world. So Ecclesiastes famously says that life is like a vapor, right? Life is like wind. Us trying to control our lives is like shepherding the wind. We cannot shepherd the wind, right? Even the thought of it should just make you laugh. You'll just look like an idiot. We cannot shepherd the wind of our lives, but there is one shepherd who can, right? There is one shepherd who does. He's the good shepherd, and even the wind and the waves obey him, right? He's the good shepherd. He knows all of his sheep by name, and he will not lose one of them. And one very, uh, very important thing, right, that uh, I want us to remember as we close is that Ecclesiastes was not given to us as a way to solve a philosophical puzzle in our minds, right? 
I think if you read this book and you really meditate on it, you will realize that it's a very practical pursuit, right? It's a very real life. It's very on the ground, something that we deal with every day. We struggle with frustration, uh, dissatisfaction, and unhappiness in our lives without the wisdom that is found in Ecclesiastes. But God has not intended us to live this way. So when we take to heart the truth of this book, our lives are fulfilled and true satisfaction and and uh, we are full and true satisfaction and fulfilling and lasting joy is found because it's found in Christ. And so Ecclesiastes ultimately leads us down a path of enjoying our lives satisfied in Christ. Um, okay, so we'll end it there. Um, are there any any questions, any comments? Uh, Cassie has made two comments on the chat. Okay. So, oh, this is to do with uh, the concubines. And... Okay. So I'll get to that like at the end. I just want to ask uh, any questions on the book first. Anything, any thoughts that you guys would like to share? Hey, Kaya. Yes. Um, I thought you were going to mention it. Um, it. It tends to also be uh, quite an interesting uh, verse uh, for most scholars. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, mm. uh, it, it's something that speaks about just Christ, uh, that says, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, that which is already has been, uh, that is which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been given away, especially the last, the last sentence, and God seeks, and God seeks what has been given away, where we think now, this why just, just Christ came, you know, we, we are far, mm. far away from the Lord, mm. and Him being coming on earth, it's what it's pretty much that He can bring us closer to the Lord. That's what God really does, you know. Could we get to read, especially from verse 3, about all the times and what man does in all experiences and all that? Mm. The, the final statement, especially when you get to verse 15, says, Above everything else, yet God seeks what has been driven away. and uh, when I read this, I thought of the Samaritan woman, mm. uh, you know, uh, the one, you know, who felt so dissonant and all, all lost and forsaken by, by her people. Yet at the same time, the Lord knew that at that moment, she's going to be there and he knew that just to be there. So he was also seeking her. And the word says that, you know, he will seek those that don't seek him anymore. You know, he stretched his hand to those that reject, his, uh, reject him. And I, I think when I mention it, uh, you know, we spoke about the gospel, and I think this also points to the gospel that um, above all the, you know, the one-liners and all the problems from, from this beautiful book, um, it's, it's, there's still um, a hint of just Christ, um, or, or one of the ways that we can see that actually God always seeks his children, God always, um, everything always, always points to just Christ. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my input in it, mm. getting the verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually very significant, I agree. Mm. Goes back to him being the good shepherd, right, who uh, leaves, even leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep. You know, it's, it's always God. God is the one who's, who's done all the work to reconcile us to him. Um, he goes for the outcasts and the rejected. So yeah, any any other any other thoughts, guys? Um, 
Benji, your, your mic again. Your mic again. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm just looking at chapter 11, verse 9. Mm-hmm. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, <laughs> in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Mm. Um, it just seems like a bit of a paradox when you now look at verses like, earlier on, where it talks about the wickedness of man's heart. Um, yeah, so chapter 9, verse 3, it says, B, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts, and while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So it feels like it's talking about the evilness of man's heart, but then it also says, walk in the ways of your heart. Mm. Am I correct in saying it's just saying, walk in the ways of your heart, but just know that whatever you do, God's going to bring it into judgment. Um, maybe you could just provide more clarity. Yeah, so... I feel I feel like both 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 uh, statements can be true, right? And uh, so I I when I read this I I wondered is this more like I I thought of like who's the young man that he's referring to? Is this like a young man? Especially because when it comes to Solomon, you find that like when you read the Proverbs, for example, a lot of his content is addressed to the young man, right? Um, like Proverbs is, is, is for a young man who we presume is following the Lord. And so the, the thought that I have there is, is this a young man who, you know, is following the Lord? Because when he talks about the evilness of people, it's like it's more general, but here it seems to be like addressing the young man. Do you, so do you get that part? So, and in a sense, I, there's truth to that statement where... Uh, I think it, as I, when I read that I, as a believer, um, it's it's true. It's it's you must rejoice in you know your youth. It's a gift from God, right? Um, walk in the ways of your heart, but that's assuming that your heart is right with God. So I think it's 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 a valid. I don't know. I feel like I might be going off off. I'm, I'm just trying to. I'm bringing assumptions to your question, but. You know, assuming like some of those things, it, I think it's a valid statement, but it's it's something that comes with a warning as well. And then contrasted to, yeah, nine, nine verse three. I don't know. I don't know if that uh, does anything to maybe like shed light on that passage. Yeah, and I get you. So <laughs> I was actually desiring God article the other day. It's like, can we trust our new heart? You know, can mm. we walk out the way of our new heart? And, yeah, I guess as long as we're being conformed to Christ, mm. um, he should always be the standard. But, yeah, we must always just know there will be consequences. Um, and we should never trust in our own wisdom, but only the wisdom from God. Um, True. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded, so when I read that passage, um, I, 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 I'm getting feedback from someone. Can you just mute Benji? I think that's you. So when I, when I read that, the, the a phrase that comes to mind is a quote. I can't remember by which theologian. But he said, like, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want, right? Like, I think one of you, someone here will know who said that. But it's like, if you have, you know, if you love God and you do what you want, what you want will be, you know, the desires of God or what pleases God. Um, so as a Chris, it's JC Rao. Yes, thank you, KG. Um, so it's it's almost like, like, as a believer, you know, if you've got that set in your mind, then you, then Ecclesiastes 
I think then the bishop of the court, then I think Ecclesiastes for a believer as well kind of gives you as a believer the guide to enjoying life right it's like you can read this but you can kind of overlook what Solomon is saying about yes seek first the kingdom of God you can kind of ignore what Solomon is saying about meaninglessness because remember as Solomon is speaking about these things he's not necessarily condemning them right he's not saying like family's bad like or work is bad you know it's that all these things without God they're meaningless they're pointless but with God, with Christ, they have their full meaning, you know. So that's why this book can be so practical. And a lot of believers will speak of how it gives them joy because it shows how you can have fullness of joy in living in this world. You know, how you can properly enjoy the things of God because God has given them to man to enjoy. Um, so, yeah. Okay, any, any other thoughts on that or any questions guys okay okay uh Cassie and Bali I see um Dikduma has also I don't know if she's replying to you so on the side on the chat you guys can just have a look uh there's a side conversation on concubines but um if that's all 